If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther. We'll be in chapters 6 and 7. I hope you brought your lunch. Esther, chapter 6 and 7. If you are visiting us and you use the Bible in the chairs, it is found on page 436 and 37 in that Bible. If you do not own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you. Esther, chapter 6, all the way to chapter 7. If you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. That night, sleep escaped the king. So he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. They found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. The king inquired, what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act? The king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. The king asked, who is in the court? Now Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. The king's attendants answered him, Haman is there standing in the courtyard. Have him enter, the king ordered. Haman entered and the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, who is it the king would want to honor more than me? Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and a horse the king himself has ridden which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor, parade him on the horse through the city square, and call out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. The king told Haman, hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything you have suggested. So Haman took the garment and the horse. He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, calling out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off for home, mournful and with his head covered. Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, since Mordecai is Jewish, and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him, because your downfall is certain. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuch arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life, this is my request, and spare my people, this is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, who is this and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. 
Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in anger and went. Haman remained, and be- Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclined. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I, was in, while I am in the house? As soon as a statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, There is a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report to save the king. The king said, Hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's answer, I mean, anger subsided. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. The rise was quick, but the fall was quicker. This is referring to FTX cryptocurrency company. In May 2019, this company was founded by Sam Bankman Freed. It immediately rose to be one of the top largest cryptocurrency exchange companies in all the world. Sam Bankman fried also known as SBF, was referred to as the J.P. Morgan of cryptocurrency. In fact, from 2019 all the way to the beginning of 2020, you saw commercials of FTX everywhere. Super Bowl, after every game, you just... If you look at your TV screen, you can't help but see an FTX commercial. They were bringing in hundreds and millions, yet around 2022. The Federal Reserve, they began to increase the rates. And what began to take place was FTX's downfall. Cracks in their company began to be exposed. What was done in the darkness began to come to light as FBF, SBF, was actually taking the money from investors and pocketing it himself and giving it to his other company. Folks began to remove their investment money. And by November of 2022, Sam Bankman Freed, had to file, I mean, not except, yeah, he did, but FTX cryptocurrency had to file for bankruptcy. And in fact, Sam Bankman Freed was on federal charges of criminal fraud. In just three years, the man went from being on top to being made low. The Proverbs would say, Proverbs chapter 16, that pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before the fall. What took place with SBF and cryptocurrency is a living picture of that proverb. And all of it was under the sovereign providence of God. The reality is 
that if one were to exalt themselves, well, in the providence of God, they will be made low. This is how God works. He is constantly doing this, and we will see God providentially do that very work in this morning's passage with the evil and wicked Haman. So our big idea for this morning's passage is a word of exhortation for us. It is this, pursue humility and trust God's providence over your life. Pursue humility and trust God's providence over your life. Two points for us in their exhortation of pride's downfall. Second, behold God's providential reversal. Beware of pride's downfall. And behold, so last time in Esther, we saw the queen approach the king without being summoned. And by the grace of God, she received favor from the king to where he asked her, what is it that you want even up to half my kingdom? Well, she had planned the banquet that she invited the king and Haman to attend. And at the banquet, the king asked once again, what do you want, Esther? Well, Esther had made known that she would do a second banquet and that she would make her request known to him then. Haman was on cloud nine, and immediately his disposition changed when he encountered Mordecai. And so he goes to his people, his inner circle. He begins to debrief with them, and they suggest that he has a gallows constructed and that he would ask the king to hang Mordecai the very next day. Haman loved the suggestion, and so he got after the work that very night. What's interesting to know is that that wasn't the only thing that was taking place that so we're going to read this morning of what was going on. This brings us to our first exhortation for us. Beware of pride's downfall. Look at verse 1. That night sleep escaped the king. The king tried to get some rest. Sleep fled from him. He pursued it but couldn't obtain it. Here sleep is personified as having legs and being like the gingerbread man just took off from the king. And here we see that even the prestige can struggle with insomnia. As the king laid in his tempurpedic bed with the best of sheets, the best pillow to lay his head, thinking that he was going to go to sleep, and yet it didn't happen. Insomnia is what took place. Now, how was it that the king couldn't fall asleep? I would give to you that this happened under the providence. Is his wise and purposeful governance over all of creation. And it is rooted in the sovereignty of God, that he has control 
over everything because he is the creator of all things. God is the only one who is truly independent. Everything else in all creation, every created thing is dependent upon God. We are utterly dependent upon the sovereign God. You name it, you're dependent upon God for it. Life, breath, food, clothing, shelter, sleep. The most ordinary and basic necessities for human life are not owed to any of us, but are given by a good and loving, compassionate God. And as he is sovereign over all, the way he exercises his sovereignty is consistent with his essence, meaning it is always good. And God is so sovereign that he will use something like a sleepless night for the good of his people. And here the king he stayed awake and listened to how he responded. It says, so he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. Now this book, it records the records of his reign, all the daily events that takes place that citizens of the kingdom have done in service to the king. Those deeds are recorded, but what's also mentioned are the rewards that he lavishes upon them to commend them for their service. And under the sovereignty of God, it was this very night that this book was read and these pages was read to the king. It says they found the written report of Mordecai, of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. As we saw in the book of Esther, this took place in chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, as Mordecai was at the king's gate, he heard of the plot, he reported it, it was confirmed. The deeds were recorded, but they weren't rewarded. And in fact, this took place five years prior to this passage. Mordecai may have expected to be rewarded. And yet, in the providence of God, it didn't happen, at least not Yet. Beloved, the reality is, as we do faithful deeds and good works in the name of Christ, they may go unnoticed by man. They may even be unappreciated by man. But God sees them. And God commends them. Even the smallest of deeds done in Jesus' name, like giving a cup of water, will be rewarded by King Jesus. To make this more specific, beloved, there are ways that you serve in the church. Whether it's putting together the communion elements, it may go unnoticed and it may be unappreciated. But as it is done in faith, the Lord commends. To make it even more specific, moms in the congregation, as you do good deeds in faith, like changing dirty diapers, 
doing laundry, and packing lunches. Your children may not appreciate it. Your husband may not even notice it. But God sees and he commands. Beloved, there is no, even the smallest of deeds, God will commend it. This deed, it was recorded but not rewarded. When the king wanted to right the wrong. He asked, what, has, what deed has done, been done in response? They say nothing. And so he begins to right the wrong. And in verse 4, in the providence of God, Haman came. Haman came and then the king summoned them and both of them wanted to meet with each other. Both of them had an agenda. And their agenda concerned the same person. And yet, they had different goals. Haman wanted to end Mordecai while the king wanted to exalt Mordecai. Verse 6. Haman asked, I mean, the king asked Haman. He says, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? The king veiled who, and yet he asked in genuine curiosity, what should be done? Well, in verses 6 all the way to 10, we see Haman's response. Haman taking it upon himself, thinking that the king was referring to him. And so Haman thought that he was about to plan his own parade. The king is asking out of genuine curiosity, Haman only being concerned about himself. He said, well, this is what I would want done for me, and this is what I would want only done for me. <laughs> Haman ain't loving his neighbor as himself. In fact, Haman is only concerned about himself. This is what I want. I want to rock the king's jays. I want the king's jacket. The man should have the king's whip. And the king's right-hand man should go around saying this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Haman's pretty much like, man, since I think it's for me, I want to be treated as if I am the king. only thinking about himself. Beloved, this is what sin does to us. Sin has corrupted all of humanity, leading us to be self-centered and self-absorbed, thinking that we are the sun and that the entire world is to revolve around us. And the fruit of sin thinking more highly of ourselves. And anything and everything can be used to stoke that pride. Wealth, success, status, affirmation, likes. Anything can be used to stoke that pride to lead us to even think all the more and more highly of ourselves. And beloved, because of the fall, we are a prideful people. We think of ourselves first and we think of ourselves most. And yet, if we were to really think about our lives, how often do we yearn to be praised by man? How often are we, in fact, envious when others are praised by man because we're not being praised? 
fall has impacted us all. The reality is, the entire humanity, all of humanity has been infected by the disease of sin. The heart of the problem is our hearts are the problem. And there is no man-made vaccine or medication that can cure us of the problem of sin. I love doctors. I am so greatly appreciative to the Lord for them, their work, their discoveries. It is truly mind-blowing what they have discovered and how they serve. But they they can't cure the human heart from sin. The divine physician is that he can. In fact, the Old Testament prophesied of the Messiah who is to come, and he will not only deal with the symptoms of sin, the fruit of sin. Jesus himself speaks of himself. He says in Mark chapter 2, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. He came to save. He came to heal all of humanity from the disease of sin, and the way that he would do it is by dying. And as Will Smith said in the movie, I Am Legend, the cure is in the blood. Well, beloved, that is only true in Jesus Christ, that the cure is in the blood, in such a way that the hymn would say that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And when sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Jesus' blood, we go from being arrogant and sinful to by the grace of God humbling ourselves before him. And the way that he does it, it is through the work of the triune God. As the Spirit of God puts sinners on that hospital bed and he begins to do open heart surgery as the gospel of Christ goes forth. To where he removes that wicked heart of stone that is only consumed about itself. And he throws it away. And by the grace of God, he gives a heart of flesh that is consumed with the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. That is what he does through the gospel. So friends, if you know yourself to not be a Christian, I am glad that you are here. The reality is... You may feel well. You may even love how you look. The doctor's report may say that you are good, but the reality is, friends, you are spiritually sick. And you need the divine physician who is only Jesus Christ. Not your good deeds, not your philanthropy, not your service. Those things are good, but those things will not cure and purify the human heart. If you are honest with yourself, you know that something is wrong. But Jesus offers forgiveness of sins and Jesus offers you new life. He died to save sin. Sinners. He died on the cross for sin. He rose from the grave. 
And in fact, he came to save sinners. Paul will say it this way, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Friends, what is different between you and those who are in Christ is that we who are in Christ actually recognize that we were sick. And we placed our hope and trust in the divine physician. But the offer on the table is for you to do the very same this very morning. So Jesus, he is the divine physician. What's so amazing about Jesus, the divine physician, is who he is. Who the one is who came to save sinners. He is the glorious one. The very one whom the angels in heaven cried, holy, 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 covering their face, covering their feet before his transcendent holiness. That one, the Son of God, he came down. Beloved, put us first. He made himself low, taking on human flesh, becoming a servant, and hanging on that old rugged cross to atone for sinners like you and I. That we who were once like Haman will be made more and more like Jesus. Beloved, the gospel humbles us. It teaches us that we are not all that. And that we ain't first. But that we are dearly loved by the one who is. It causes us to not think highly of ourselves, but to think highly of God and the Lord Christ. So Haman, he gives the suggestion. The king, he's eating those words up like honey. He's filling everything that Haman has said. And so he's like, man, hey, go do that. Verse 10, except it's for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything you have suggested. Mordecai, Mordecai, the irony, the very one Haman has come and wanted to ask for this. And in the sovereignty of God, Haman will be the right-hand man who go around the city announcing this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Verse 11, Haman is humiliated. As we saw in chapter 4, the Jews are weeping. Well, here we see Haman weeping, crying that ugly cry, that Michael Jordan meme. You've been watching March Madness, you see a ton of folks whose teams have lost. The camera just zeroes in on them and you see them crying. That's what Haman was doing. This humiliation is guaranteed for those who exalt themselves because God humbles those who exalt themselves. Y'all, I love movies. One of my favorite movies is uh, the Rocky and Creed series. My wife and I, we've watched Rocky 1 through 4. We've seen all the Creeds. And one of my favorite scenes in all the movies is the montage scene. Like, man, they training. 
boxing, mitten, they running. Like, man, they are just getting it. And I love every second of it. And I like to get myself up and start thinking that I can do a little bit of that. And if I'm really feeling myself, I think I can get in the ring with somebody. And then my beloved bride, whom the Lord has given wisdom, begins to talk some sense into me. <laughs> letting me know that, hey, <laughs> that will be foolish. Okay? You ain't getting in the ring with anybody, and if you do, you won't win. That's how foolish I'm like, you're right, you're right, baby, you're right. It would be extremely foolish for me to get in the ring with anybody. I would definitely lose. But you know what would be more foolish than me getting in a boxing ring? Is one exalting themselves. Because to exalt yourself is to get in the ring, not with me and not with Floyd Mayweather, but to get in the ring with God Almighty. God says that he opposes the proud. He is 100% committed to bringing low those who think highly of themselves. Do you really want to get in the boxing ring with God? Scripture says that he opposes the proud and he gives grace to those who are humble. Now to humble oneself is to have glory. To humble yourself is to know that, man, I do not have a leg to stand on. I am going to cling to Jesus Christ. Beloved, we are be the people who are marked by humility. Because we, and as we, by God's grace, progress in our sanctification, that should look like we're getting better and better at getting lower and lower. Putting others before us because that's exactly what Jesus did. And the way we do this is to fix our gaze on the humble and glorious King. Studying the word and taking captive every proud thought and not excusing a single one of them. So Haman, he, he goes. Verse 13, he calls his inner circle. He tells his people. And in verse 13, they had some words for him. They said, since Mordecai is Jewish... And you have begun to fall before him. You won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. Proverbial wisdom. They may have been familiar with Israel's history and how God delivers his people. Or the writing just may be on the wall. But either way, they were right. Haman, what we begin to see more and more is a progression of Haman's descent. As I said earlier, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. To gas oneself up without a parachute, it would lead to immediate plunge and destruction. Let me address the children in the room. Kids, you are... Very familiar with opposites, you know, like, what's the opposite of light? It's dark. Opposite of big is small. Opposite of being high is low. Opposite of being happy is sad. 
Well, in the Bible, there are some spiritual opposites. And there's one that I'll just point out. He's dealing with high and low. And what I mean by this is, if you want to brag about yourself, making yourself high, your friends may like it. You may even get friends because of it. But God doesn't like it. If you were to brag about yourself and make yourself high, God will bring you low. But the flip side of that is if you get low and love Jesus, who's the Savior, and brag about him, God will raise you high to where you would be seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. So the question is, do you want to be made low by God or do you want to be made high by God? Your parents would love to have these conversations with you. And I would implore you to trust in Jesus and get low and let God raise you up. Beloved, this part of the passage, it is a flashing warning sign for us to not walk down the path that Haman walked because it leads to destruction. This is written for our instruction, and we would be foolish to disregard it, to think that we are the exception, because to think so, just know that God will lovingly teach you that you're not. And the lesson will likely be painful. So may we beware of pride. May we behold God's providential reversal. So verse 14, they take Haman to the party. Chapter 7, the party is going on. Second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you, whatever you seek. Even to half the kingdom will be done. So there's the second banquet. And by the grace of God, the king still has a favorable disposition towards Queen Esther. This is her chance, and she takes advantage of it. Look at verse 3 and 4. She says, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, if the king is pleased, here's my request. Spare my life. And spare my people. This is my desire. Verse 4 gives the reason. For they have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. And so Esther, she gives a two-part petition in response to the king's two-part invitation. And the petition is to spare me and my people. She says this very shrewdly. And she communicates to the king Hey, king, your wife's life is threatened because the life, her life, and the Jews' life here are one and personal ramifications on the king. And she begins to quote the edict verbatim. They have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. The very words that Haman himself had the folks write in chapter 3, verse 13. And so here she is pleading for the king to intervene. Now, the laws in Persia, they couldn't revoke a law once it's been instituted. But the king did have authority 
to do something. And y'all, this catches the king off guard. Verse 5, he is clueless to the ramifications. And as we've seen throughout the book of Esther, this king, he doesn't think for himself. He doesn't decide for himself. In fact, he is a pawn in the hand of his counselors. So he's like, who did this? Look at verse 6. Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Catch the description she gave about Haman. He's an adversary, he's an enemy, and he is evil. Who does that sound like? Satan himself. And it's certainly true of Haman because he was a spiritual child of Satan. Shrewdly manipulating the king and seeking. This was a demonic scheme. And he wouldn't get away with it. Because to go against God's covenant people in the Old Testament is to go against God himself. Though this very people were faithless to God, they were brought into exile because of their covenant disobedience. After exile, they were commanded to go back to Jerusalem, and we see that some Jews stayed in Susa. Though they were faithless, God would remain faithful. The promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Well, here they are going against, Haman is going against God's covenant people, and so God came against Haman. He sought their annihilation, and so God would end him. This wicked scheme was exposed in the providence of God at this very time. And the reality is, beloved, there is no evil scheme that people will get away with. God will judge. So here Haman, he is petrified because he's found out. Verse 7 and 8, the king, he leaves and he is angry. And this is a lose-lose situation for Haman. To go after the king is to go after the very one who's angry with him. But to stay, he's left at the foot of the woman whose people he sought to kill gets down and begs for his life. And y'all peep the irony. Haman ordered the annihilation of the Jews because Mordecai refused to bow. And here we see Haman bowing at the feet of a Jewish woman begging for his life. Behold the providential reversal of God. The one who is after public honor has been humiliated. The one who is thought so highly of himself is getting very low at the feet of one whose ethnicity he despises. And think about this. Remember the context of the book of Esther. There were two edicts that have gone out so far in this book. One oppressed women... And here you have the one who is second in command, prostrated before the feet of a woman who is a Jew. 
behold God's providential reversal. So he chooses to prostrate himself because the custom of that time was that men should not be left alone with the king's harem. And so the king in verse 8, he comes in, he sees the king, he sees her, sees him. At his feet, at her feet. My bad, I'm messing this thing all up. He sees Haman at her feet. And he says, would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? The king interpreted this scene as Haman running game on his wife. Haman trying to make a pass on his wife. And so this arouses the king's anger all the more. And at the end... One of the eunuchs said, there's a gallows 70 feet, 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai. The very Mordecai who you, tr- who you sought to exalt. The very Mordecai who saved your life, king. Haman just tried to kill him. You want me to hang him there? <laughs> king said, absolutely. Hang him there. <laughs> Haman was hung on the gallows and the king's anger has subsided. And here we see another reversal in the providence of God. The very instrument that Haman had constructed to kill Mordecai, Haman himself fell on. That in the providence of God, all that Haman intended for the Jews fell on himself. What we see here, once again, that in chapter 6, verse 13, the, the very, uh, maybe even prophecy or words that Haman's inner circle made known, say, your downfall is certain. Well, it came less than a day later. The fall was so quick. Now, all of this is because of the providence of God. And God's providence, he willed for justice to happen swiftly. Beloved, this teaches us, one of the things that this teaches us is that God is just and that he will administer justice. He opposes all evil, all injustices, personal, local, societal, national, and international. They are contrary to his ways and they provoke his righteous wrath because his anger is always and only aroused in response is just. The very foundation of his throne is justice and righteousness. And because God is just, his judgments are consistent with his nature, which means that it is always, always, always accurate. He never errs. Here we see poetic justice on full display. God is just and he will administer justice. Now it's important for us to know that what's not prescriptive in this passage is the timing by which God administers justice. Here it happened really quickly But that's not always the case. In this fallen world, sometimes injustice prevails. Sometimes the guilty actually get away. And how are we to respond? We lament, 
We pray. We do what we can. And we entrust everything, 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 including timing to a sovereign and holy God. Because God is sovereign, wise, good, and just. As enriched by injustice, we can still praise him with hope. This is what Christian slaves did as they persevered amidst the atrocity of chattel slavery. This is what being struck down, beaten, and oppressed, and yet they still rejoiced on Sundays knowing that God saw their affliction, that he is sovereign. They hoped for deliverance, and they entrusted the judgments to God. And, beloved, we can do the same. Miss injustice or any sort of suffering, we pray and plead for deliverance, and we can entrust ourselves to God and wait on his timing, knowing that he is an on-time God. Beloved, behold God's providential reversal at work. The very thing that Haman reserved for Mordecai, God reversed to the point where Haman experienced it himself. And what's so amazing about the gospel is that the opposite took place for us. Like Haman, we were guilty and prideful people guilty of sinning against a holy and righteous God, and yet God in his love did not treat you and I as our sins deserved. In fact, when he sent Jesus, a great exchange took place that resulted in the most glorious reversal ever. The sinless one took our sin and hung on that cross, suffering the judgment you and I rightfully deserve. And when we have trusted in him, he gives us his righteousness. Beloved, behold the reversals that God works through the gospel. We go from death to life, from being under judgment to being justified, from being sinners to being saints, from being God's enemies to being heirs with Christ in the coming kingdom. God has brought about the greatest reversal that is ever imagined, and guess what? It was according to the providential plan of God. Beloved, he willed for this to happen long before he said, let there be. The plan preceded the creation of the universe. Our plan of salvation. Isaiah 46 says that God makes known that he has declared saying that he will accomplish all of his plans and all of his purposes he will fulfill. So, beloved, what this means is that we can't say that God doesn't care about us. Because he does. What this means is that God had you and I on his minds and in his hearts, and he wrote our names in the Lamb's book of life long before we ever thought of him. Consider what the providence of God has done for us. Salvation. And when we consider that, how can we not trust his providence over our entire life? 
He has brought about some great reversals, and there will be another great reversal that is to come. Beloved, think about your bodies. You may love your body. You may be in shape. But one thing is certain, it is wasting away. Keto and exercise ain't preventing that. One thing is certain, your body will go into the grave one day. But guess what? It won't remain there. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, his death and resurrection, when we are united to him, we will experience the very same thing. That when Jesus Christ cracks the sky, beloved, you know what's going to happen? Another great reversal. Our bodies that were once in the grave, they will come out. And God himself will glorify our bodies. And he will renew all of creation. There will be a great reversal to where this creation that is cursed, the curse will be lifted. And all who have trusted in Jesus will see our king and we will reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And this is according to the providential plan that God has promised. So in the moments when you're wondering, can you trust God? Think about the gospel. Think about the promises of God that he has made, his faithfulness to fulfill them, and think about what is to come, knowing that he who promised is faithful and trust our good and gracious God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we praise you for your providence, your plans, and not one will be thwarted. Not one is strong enough to keep you from fulfilling your purposes. Who love Jesus, who trust you in all situations, seasons, and circumstances. For you are always good. And you always work for the good of your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.